for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. Hi, I'm John Jagay. I'm going to try not to slip into my Boston accent in this episode because I'm talking to a fellow Bostonian from the class of 1985. Julie Bruno, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm great. You're supposed to say, how are you? Well, you know, it's funny. When I went to Syracuse, I didn't even know I had a Boston accent, you know, until everyone on, Ditto. Everyone on the floor at school was like laughing at me. And I had a roommate whose name was Jane Bocker, B-O-C-K-E-R. And one of my other, you know, floor mates thought I was saying Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R with a Boston accent. Um, so anyway, I had no idea I had an accent until I get up there. And I, I actually have gotten rid of it. I have too. People are like, oh, you're from Boston, you don't have the accent. I'm like, well, I was mercilessly taunted by my floor mates in Sadler uh, freshman year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People think I'm kidding when I say, so the thing in your bedroom that you put your clothes in, in in the dresser, the things you pull out of the dresser, I literally thought the first 17 years of my life it was spelled draw, like draw on a piece of paper. Like, you put your clothes over there in the draw. Draw. And I didn't realize there was an ER on the end of that word until I got to Syracuse. Yeah, I had no idea either. And it was something that people made fun of me for because there weren't a lot of, there were a fair amount of Massachusetts kids at Syracuse. But back then, it was a lot of New Jersey, a lot of New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was more amazed by the New York accent, the Long Island accent, right? (laughs) And um, so, uh, yeah, but I did get rid of it. But of course, if I get tired, or if I'm, you know, I've had a few, uh, the the accent comes out. Mm -hmm. And I I actually hear it when it comes out. I'm like, Oh, my God, that was so bad. If I don't hear it, my wife will. Uh-huh. She'll look at me and she'll say, you're tired. Yeah. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you just dropped every R in that entire sentence. Like, oh, yeah, I guess. I. But I also realize I add R's. Like, I, ins- I don't say pizza. I say pizza. You want to get some pizza and beer? You know? <laughs> How does a Boston girl decide to go to Syracuse, Julie? Well, I really am not from Boston. I grew up in Mansfield, Mass., which was small town down near Foxborough where the Patriots play. Great Woods. Great Woods. We'll talk about that. Or I, the Comcast Center, the Tweeta Center, whatever brand owns it now. Yeah, It'll always be Great Woods to me. Mm-hmm. You know, listen, it was 1980. I lived in a small town. I was the oldest of five kids. I knew I was going to college, but like there were no college counselors and a lot of kids in my class weren't even going to college. So I don't even know how I came up with Syracuse. Uh, My neighbor went there (laughs) and I had a cousin that went there. Okay. And I just was like, I'm going to go to Syracuse. Uh, It's in New York. You know, (laughs) I thought it was Manhattan. (laughs) I was so dumb. I mean, listen, you have to remember it's the 80s, a small town, um, just a lot of ignorance, a lot of ignorance. So I applied early decision. I got in and I just applied early decision. I didn't know I was supposed to apply to Newhouse. Really, there was nobody guiding me. So I applied. I got in. And then I realized, oh, I'm not in the communication school. And everyone said, well, you can just, you know, uh, transfer in. Yeah. So that was kind of my plan. And I got up there. I mean, I was lost. I mean, I was, you know, from a small town. I was a big fish. Everyone knew my family, everyone knew my brothers and sisters, everyone knew my parents, everyone knew my cousins. It was one of those kind of towns, very Italian. 
and in that way. And uh, I got to Syracuse and nobody knew who I was. And I'm like, <laughs> it's me, Julie Bruno. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the first day a girl on my floor introduced herself and she told me she was from New Jersey. And I was like, I felt bad for her. You know, who's from New Jersey? <laughs> what exit? And she seemed very normal to me. And I don't know. I, I, I don't even know what I thought. <laughs> I didn't really know anything. I didn't know about Long Island. I really was very naive. So I got up there and I was very lost. It just so happens that a girl named Mary Mancini lived on my floor. And I kind of was drawn to her because she was Italian, too. You know, sometimes you just need that one thing in common with somebody right, to, right. To, to make that connection. Yeah. But Mary was really cool. Or at least I thought she was. <laughs> you don't have to tell anybody listening to this podcast that Mary Mancini is cool. We all know. But she was really cool. Like she had like spiky black hair and she had like black ankle boots. And, you know, there I was with my L.L. Bean moccasins on <laughs> and my cable knit sweater from Massachusetts, you know, my L.L. Bean jacket. And this girl was like from Long Island and she was seemed super confident and she was super confident. And somehow along the line, she told me about this radio station she was going to work at. That's how I think I came to work at JPZ or go over there or something, because I was just looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. But I don't really remember. There's a lot I don't remember, but I do remember Mary. She looked like Joan Jett in a good way and um, or Pat Benatar. <laughs> and I said, well, if Mary's working at this radio station, I'll go work at this radio station. This is 81 when you're arriving on campus. The station is AM carrier current. Like, can anybody hear it at this point? We've talked about this in the, in the podcast. It's in the Spectrum building. Nobody's listening to it. It's going out to nobody. I, I mean, that's my understanding, at least. So what did you do when you got there? Not much. I had no idea <laughs> what I was doing. I do remember like showing up at like really late at night. I had no idea how to run the board. I had no idea what to say. Even though no one was listening, I was completely self-conscious. I was able to tell people at home, oh, I'm working at a radio station. But I really wasn't working at the radio <laughs> station. You understand? <laughs> that was like freshman year, sophomore year. I goobered around with it a little bit. All the while, I never transfer into Newhouse because I think you needed a really high GPA and I think you had to fill out the application. And that was just too much for me. So <laughs> that was not going to happen. And I just kind of plowed along. I freshman year realized I wanted to study abroad in Italy because this professor came and talked to us about it. And I'm like that for sure. I knew I wanted to do. OK. I just kind of chose my courses and what I was doing based on going to Italy my junior year. But junior year, the first semester of junior year, I meet Mike Nelson, who was another DJ at the station, and we become friendly. And then I take off to Italy second semester junior year. And when I come back senior year, there's all this, you know, excitement because the station is now going to go FM. And Mike asked me to host a show with him. And I really need to emphasize, I was very much a tertiary player here. I was not even a secondary player. I was a tertiary player. <sighs> Meanwhile, Mary Mancini and Mark Humble and Dave Levin and Phil Acasio and Steve Simpson, Eric Fitch, you know, they were actually getting a radio station on the air. Yeah. Now I'm like, oh, my God, what were these people doing? This is incredible. Yeah. But somehow Mike asked me to host this Sunday night 
Better Hit Music Survey was the name of the show with him. Okay. I'm like, sure, I'll glom onto that because I had no idea what I was doing. He and Bungo kind of put it together. Bungo was the producer, Chris Bungo, who really was a genius. Yep. A genius. I don't know how he knew how to do any of the stuff he was doing, but he was doing incredible stuff production-wise. His production skills have been well-documented in the podcast so far. Everybody talks about how he was way ahead of his time when it came to that stuff. Yeah, but I don't know. How, how was that? How, where was he learning this? <laughs> I just did what they told me, and I was so bad. You know, I was like, thanks, Mike. <laughs> I just had no confidence. I had no idea what I was doing. But they seemed to have some confidence in me, or they. I was like the female sidekick, you know? And mm-hmm. Mike really knew music. Mike knew everything about music. I knew very little. You know, I knew about Pat Benatar, Foreigner, Journey, all the stuff that I was listening to as a kid in Massachusetts from, you know, Kiss 108, Dale Dorman, Sonny Joe White, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there were so many characters. There was, there's this one guy, I always wonder about him and no one ever brings it up and he's never come for a reunion. His name was Bill Fox. Okay. And Bill... I believe had cerebral palsy. I'm not sure. But he got around Syracuse with a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He was so awesome. I just, I I can't believe the courage it took him, moreover, his parents, to be in a wheelchair. I mean, he could walk, but to be on this uh, campus like Syracuse, which is on a hill, you know, in the snow, and he would push that wheelchair with his books in it up to Watson uh, when we moved up to Watson. I think he did sports or news. He was very much a real character of that time. But there were so many people, like I wrote down names, I'm trying to think. E-double-R, did you ever hear of E-double-R, Eric Renner? Yeah, he's come on many podcasts. Could I try to get him on an episode? I mean, an incredible character. He was younger than me. But when I came back that senior year and the station went on the FM dial, it was spring of my senior year. Mm -hmm. Humble and Dave Levin and... Chris Mossman. Chris Mossman was younger than me and he was running the station. Again, I don't know how any of these people knew what they were doing, but they seemed to know what they were doing very well. And then you had like the Carl Weinsteins, the Larry Barons, they were under us grade wise. It was just an exciting time. It was second semester senior year. I'm on the show. People do seem to be listening to it on campus. And now you're on FM. People can hear you. Yeah, but it's, that is not processing for me. <laughs> It just seemed like it was a real place and it was exciting and there was always people at Watson and the lights were on and it was a real studio and it was fun. I remember once one night I they had me host a show by myself and I was super relaxed for some reason. I wasn't uptight and I had so much fun. And this really popular girl who was in my class came up to me on campus. She's like, oh, I, I heard you on the radio last night. It was so great. And I was like, what? Like, I just couldn't believe that she had heard it. (laughs) She seemed impressed by this. And then Bungo would have me doing like drop-ins and stuff. Like I'd have to do like sexy voice and (laughs) WJPZ. And then he put a lot of reverb on it. You can still do it. I sounded so sexy. (laughs) But he was just like moving around the thing and moving the levers around. And he really knew what he was doing. And he was doing all those like Z100 drop-ins, you know, like yeah. live from the top of Mount Olympus. And it was fun. But you could see that there was a real situation going on for these younger kids who were really learning about radio and real radio. 
I was just kind of along for the ride. But ironically, I ended up working in my professional career in radio. I was going to ask you about that, Julie, because you're, this whole time you've been very self-deprecating and saying, you know, you, you were just kind of there and hanging out and whatever. But you made a really successful career in media. Tell me what was for you, what happened to you after Syracuse. So then I was like, OK, I'm going to try to become a DJ somewhere. OK. I don't know why. Bungo helped me put a tape together and I sent a tape up to a station in Burlington, Vermont. There was a Syracuse grad, not a JPZ guy, but a Newhouse guy who his name was Rob Poulin. Mm-hmm. He was a program director at this station, WXXX, which you know about, 95 X, Which I ended up working at. Yeah, which is so crazy. So he hires me as a weekend jock. So I piled up my parents' station wagon. I moved up to Vermont. And I think Rob Poulin thought I knew what I was doing. And I didn't. I was so bad at the board. Technically, I'm really not good. And um, But I, I did go up there and did weekends, you know, Julie B. And I did time and weather, Champlain Valley weather. (laughs) I was miserable. I was like, I don't know anybody here. I worked at a restaurant. I had no confidence to begin with. And I lost whatever drop I had. And I'm like, I am not a talent for radio on air, at least. But I could see that there were salespeople working there. I thought, if these guys can do that, I can do this. Right. So anyway, I come back home to Mansfield. I have no job. And um, the phone rang at my house and it was this man. His first name was Kurt. I can't remember his last name, but he told me he had got my name from somebody. To this day, I have no idea who it was. Huh. He said they were opening a new performing arts center in Mansfield called Great Woods. And would I want to come work in the box office? I said, okay. Oh, I got a job. Yeah. So I worked at Great Woods the first year it opened in the box office. And of course, they had positioned this to the town of Mansfield as a Forming Arts Center, and the home of the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. So they were trying to position it as like a Tanglewood kind of summer. Yeah, like every market has that like outdoor concert venue for the summer. This was the one for Boston out in the suburbs, right? But what it really was, was it was a venue for big concerts, you know? Yeah. And so it was super exciting. All these acts were coming in, like Bon Jovi and Neil Diamond and Hart, and big acts were coming there. And I had a ball. And by the end of the summer, I think, all my siblings were working there except my youngest sibling because she was still in high school. Like my brother okay. there, my two brothers, and I got a neighbor and we had a lot of fun. But during that time, I kept meeting people at the will call window who were from radio stations, salespeople from radio stations. Mm-hmm. So this is putting a thing in my mind about getting into sales. But after that first season, I ran into somebody in Boston and they told me about a job at Fidelity. And so next thing you know, I'm working at Fidelity Investments, 86, 87. I continue to work the following summer at Great Woods again. So I was working two jobs because it was just so fun. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I started working also at the Orpheum on weekends. It's the club in Boston? Yeah, the Orpheum Theater in Boston is a famous, you know, it's a place where a lot of big acts play. I mean, I'd go in on a Saturday. I'd be the only one there, me and the rats, you know? Like literal rats. I would open the door and you could see them running. So I kind of was in that music venue mode. And then at some point in 87, the stock market crashed and many of us were let go. So I was gone from Fidelity. So now I'm like, I want to work in radio. I want to be in sales. Mm -hmm. So I started hitting the pavement. Nothing's working. And then like all things, somebody who I knew, knew somebody 
and I got a job as a salesperson at WBOS, which was going to be a brand new station in Boston, radio station, Ackerley Communications out of Seattle. They owned it. Brand new station. They had tons of money. They were sinking tons of money into this beautiful new space. It was an adult contemporary station, but it was like a little bit fresher, you know, like Sean Colvin was being played and it wasn't old folk. It was like new adult contemporary. Mm -hmm. Because it was so new and because there was such turnover, by the end of my first year, I'm carrying like a major list in Boston. I'm calling on the biggest agencies around, you know? Great. Okay. Within a year or so, another radio station poached me because they offered me more. I'm like, oh my God, more money. <laughs> I'm going to go. And I worked for WSSH. And then I got poached out of there to work in TV sales. And so I did that for a long time. And what station in Boston were you at? WSBK. Do you remember that? TV 38. Three Stooges. That's what I know that TV station for, because aside from Red Sox games, every New Year's Eve, because it's hereditary where fathers pass this down to their sons, yeah. my dad, my brother, and I would watch the Three Stooges Marathon every New Year's Eve growing up as kids. Yeah, I sold that embarrassingly enough. But we had the Red Sox, the Bruins, the Celtics. We were selling major sports sponsorships. And um, I was actually the first ever female sales manager at WSBK. Very cool. I did not know that about you. So what was next for you, Julie? After I worked at the TV station, I was a little bit older. I was late 30s. I was having a difficult time getting pregnant. I left that job mm -hmm. and I said, I can't travel anymore. I was traveling all over the country. And uh, nine months went by, ironically, and I still didn't get pregnant. And there was a job that opened at WBCN, which WBCN was a Absolutely iconic radio station in Boston. Yeah. And it was a national sales manager's job. I made a phone call. Next thing you know, I'm the national sales manager at WBCN. We have Howard Stern in the morning. It's the dot-com boom. It was a lot of fun. And BCN was not known as a fun place to work. But I enjoyed those two years. I was there for two years. Uh, you know, work with like Oedipus. Like, he's a legend. What years were you at BCN, Julie? 99 through 2001. Okay. So we had like Howard in the morning. I went to Howard's birthday party at Roseland Ballroom. I mean, there was some real fun things that went on there. Um, Opie and Anthony in the afternoon. Was Nick Carter there at that time too? Yes, he did middays then. And then I think he went to PM Drive. I know Nick, good dude, yeah. Yeah, he was there. But when I was working there, this girl shows up one day. She's a new, like, new business development person. And her name was Kelly Sutton. And we go out to lunch the first day. And she went to Syracuse. And she worked at WJPZ, which this is the <laughs> first time in all my years in the business that I encountered, except Eric Fitch, somebody from JPZ. And she was the first female general manager at WJPZ. So I think she was really like taken aback that I knew JPZ, that I worked there because I was much older than her. Mm -hmm. But we are lifelong friends, too. And I'm hoping she's coming up to the reunion this week and I'm hoping to see her. So you're at BCN 99, 2000, turn of the century. What's after that for you? So then 9-11 happened. Right. 9-11 happened and that American Airlines flight that came out of Boston, that would have been very typical of me to have been on that particular flight to go out to L.A. And wow. business had just started to turn a little bit. Like the dot-com business was so huge. It's now September of 2001. Things are slowing down. So I didn't plan a fall trip. But in my mind, I could have been on that flight. Wow. And I said, here I am. I'm like 38. I can't get pregnant. I can't do this anymore. But the business was also changing. You could see yeah. that there were five CBS stations in the market. There were four national sales managers. And now I could see that they wanted 
there to be one. Yeah. They wanted one to do all five stations. And I was stuck if I was the person who got let go. I was stuck if I was a person they kept. Sure. I have no idea what their plan was, but either way, it wasn't going to work for me. And so I just left the business altogether. I worked it out of my house for a magazine and then I got pregnant and I just stopped. I stayed home with my daughter, which was great for several years. I probably should have tried to go back to work at some point, but I didn't. And so now, you know, I'm close to 60. I could never handle radio or TV sales now. I just, I don't have the physical energy, I don't think, for that kind of thing. But let me tell you, the business was very good to me and was very good to my husband. He's in TV. My daughter's always like, why do you not pay for Spotify so we don't have to listen to the commercials? I say, commercials built this house. You know, (laughs) I'm not going to pay to not listen to commercials because commercials is how I made my living. Let me ask you this, Julie. So, you know, you talked about the industry really changing around 2001. That was, of course, after the Telecom Act in 96 passed. And that was kind of the beginning of a massive sea change in the industry. Here we are 20 years out, we're 22 years out from then. Do you still follow the industry and trends at all? Do you still kind of keep your eye on what's going on? Or are you? No, I don't. In fact, every time I talk to Kelly Sutton, I'm like, who do you work for now? What station is that? Like, I don't know what happened in Boston Radio, but it blew up. Yeah, there's a massive ownership change and exchange of stations a couple of years ago and everything changed. Yeah. It's weird because I listen to Sirius all the time. Yeah. You should see me negotiating with Sirius every year. They send me the increase. Oh, my God. Oh my- I'm like the most nightmare media buyer you ever. I'm like, why would I pay you 100 percent increase this year? Just cancel me, please. And the next thing you know, they're giving it to me for like, you know, two dollars more than last year. I love to negotiate with Sirius. You know what? It's funny because we do have several alumni, of course, that work for Sirius. Oh. She just wins. No, it's fine. But there's always this game of like, oh, well, you got the new car and then it's in your car for six months or a year. And then like, usually you can haggle them down. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I'm paying full price now only because I was too lazy to pick up the phone and be like, hey, knock my rate down. I worked for Mel Carmazon for two years and Mel would never pay a 100% increase on anything. So when he was running it, I mean, that guy would never pay. So I used to always say to them, Mel Carmazon wouldn't pay a 100% increase. So I'm not paying a 100%. Now, <laughs> listen, every year they bump me up a little bit, but I'm not paying double. And you should never, ever take their increases without a fight. My husband, I think, pays full price because he gets Howard and he there's a premium. But I just get the basics. So I... My personal experience is that I'm always listening to either my playlist on Apple CarPlay mm-hmm. or I'm listening to Sirius. So I I just, I never listen to regular radio anymore. They've really gotten socked with COVID and drive times. I mean, people aren't commuting to offices like they were. I think it's very difficult right now. I think unless you're in sports radio, which I think is still bonkers. Yeah, the talk formats, news talk and sports are still doing really well. And music is really having to reinvent itself as we've talked to on several guests of this podcast. So, Because here's the thing that I always want to say to the kids who are at JPZ. This is a great classroom and you can learn a lot of things. But the bottom line is when you get out there, it's about two things. Really, it's about one thing. But two things, ratings and revenue. Yep. And it's really about revenue. It's really only about revenue. You know, I love the kids who are excited about it and want to do it. But boy, I don't know if I had a daughter who was interested in it, if I'd want to push her down that alley. On one hand, it's a dying business. But on the other hand, it's always going to be there. It's never going to not be there. Someone still has to advertise on it, reach people. But I think the expansion of it is gone. Now it's a different animal. You can't keep growing at 20% a year. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. 
And that was the edict at CBS, 20% growth a year. I mean, that is unsustainable. That sounds like forever ago. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. Julie, what other memories come to mind for you from JPZ? Let's talk about the Better Hit Music Survey. Mike wanted to do a top 100 or something like that. Greatest hits of all time. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be a survey where he asked listeners, what are the greatest songs of all time? But really, it was Mike picking out the top songs. Okay, (laughs) Something's never changed. Yeah. Okay. And again, I want to just go back to the music back then. That first year, Mary Mancini was the music director, I believe. And the stuff that she was playing was stuff I had never heard before. Depeche Mode, New Order, uh, Bronski Beat, all this kind of English electronica stuff, new wave kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was so cool. And I loved that music. So we're doing this survey show. It's a big Sunday night. It's going to be like several hours. It's going to be like five hours. We're going to count down a hundred songs or something. Bungo's the producer. I'm just nodding and going, yeah, Mike. Yeah. You know, like, ooh, the number (laughs) one is whatever. I have no idea how this list came together. And then we get to the number one song. And Mike has chosen Purple Rain by Prince. Ha! And people went bananas. They were so mad. The the (laughs) phone lines opened up. People were, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. I was like, oh, my God. And today I feel like, oh, if that happened today, we would have been like canceled. You know, Twitter went a, went bananas. Purple Rain's a great song. People just thought it wasn't good. Or what was the, what was it the problem? It wasn't number one of 100 people thought. People didn't okay. think it was n- number one. Um, Mike was such a great guy. He ended up very shortly after we graduated. He passed away from leukemia. Mm. And it was just so sad. I just still think about him. He was just a fun, great guy. He ended up working at the New York Post after college. And um, again, without the phones, you start getting into your own career. You get married. You lose touch with people. So I really did lose touch with everyone for a very long time until I think it was the 25th JPZ reunion. So those were good times. But when we go back to these reunions, I'm just so stunned at the kids Marty Peterman, Def Jeff, uh, Scott McFarland. These guys are all really inspirational to me. They're funny or they've done amazing things. And these are all kids 10 to 15 years younger than me, I think. Mm -hmm. That has been great about JPZ too, going back and meeting the younger crew and how connected everybody is. And uh, I feel as connected to those kids as I do not like Peterman, I just think he's hysterical. He is. I had the good fortune of being classmates with him, and you won't find a funnier guy than than Peterman. I mean, the guy should be on TV, to be honest. <laughs> and it's funny because I've had some dealings with this guy over the years. Uh, he works at this um, decorative hardware store that does like really big architectural projects where the you know where the hardware alone in a house is costing like a quarter of a million dollars, <laughs> and. Uh, not my house, but others. And it turns out he's Peterman's cousin. <laughs> How weird is that? For me, JPZ was the one thing that has brought me back to Syracuse over the years. Mm-hmm. 
I have a whole group of friends from the days I went to Italy and from my freshman year, but JPZ is the only reason I've ever gone back, ever. None of my friends go back. And I've become closer to these JPZ people now than I ever was back then. Like Godsick is classic. I mean, I remember that kid coming in. I was, he was like a freshman when I was a senior. And he was like so cocky, so New York, so handsome. He looked like a young Marlon Brando. And he, unbeknownst to me, had worked at Z100. So he was like a professional jock practically. And I was like, how do these people know this stuff? But he's somebody who's always stayed in touch. Mm-hmm. And I still am in touch with him to this day. Mary, same thing. And we have a little group on our cell phone called Old JPZers. And it's like Bob Flint, Mark Humble, Dave Levin, Mary. It's just weird. It's not strange because I've talked to alumni from the 90s that have group texts with people from the 90s. Yeah. I'm the class of 02. I have a group text with four of my classmates from 02. Even if the technology wasn't there when you were a student, it's there now. And we still used to stay in touch with each other. And same thing for me. I don't. I think I went back to like a homecoming once or twice after I graduated. But after that, only reason I come back is for the JPZ people. So these stories just mirror each other throughout 50 years, whether you graduated in 85, 02, 72, or 22. Right. Again, it was a tertiary thing for me at school, but it's become a primary thing for me as an adult. Absolutely. Julie Bruno, thank you so much for some time today. Any closing thoughts as we wrap this up? Just want to say that I really feel fortunate to, and I didn't realize this till many years later, to have had that experience at Syracuse and to have those connections that I've made it through the radio station, both then and through the banquets through the years. I mean, God love Rocco. He really put this whole thing together with the banquets. There's so many great characters I've met along the way and I'm very proud to be a part of that. It's one of the only things I've ever given money to at Syracuse was that, JPZ and the study abroad program. That's it. That's why I go back. That's what I've given my donations to. And I think it's great you're doing these podcasts. It's so fun. And thank you. And I'll see you at the banquet. Sounds good. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.